learning to be taught dehumanizes. It, it is about putting the authority, the responsibility to determine what's true, what's good, what's beautiful outside of yourself. And that is very problematic. And what do we educate for? We need to ask that question uh, and answer it as explicitly and clearly as we can. What's the relationship between good grades and living a good life? Between doing well in school, and as Michael Full and my mentor usually says, uh, between doing well in school and doing well in life, there's no connection. Hello, and welcome to the Coconut Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Freud. We've rebranded. We used to be the Meaningful Learning Podcast by Coconut Thinking, but now we'll keep things simple and be the Coconut Thinking Podcast. We'll still have provocateurs, inquirers, thinkers, activists who are helping us think about education and learning in different ways, connecting it to wider systemic issues, and also in terms of the future and the present and what's needed for learners of all ages. Today's guest is Santiago Rincon Gallardo. Santiago is the Chief Research Officer of the Michael Fullman Foundation. He's involved in multiple projects in the United States, Canada, Latin America, and Europe. Santiago introduces us to the concept of liberating learning and its power to change lives in the world and thinking about educational change at leadership and learner level in order to be more free in our learning, in order to make learning more meaningful, and to deepen learning for purpose and greater projects. This is a fantastic conversation. Santiago has so much to say and is very rich. And I feel sometimes that we only scratch the surface of what's going on uh, inside his head. Um, but without further ado, I'll leave space for my conversation with Santiago. Well, hi, Santiago. Thank you so much for uh, joining our podcast. Uh, really interested in some of the ideas that you've had uh, about rethinking about what learning is and uh, repositioning it and giving us... Um, uh, ways to think about learning that that are very liberating. Literally, those those are the words that that, that you use in the freedom to learn. Um, wanted to to start off the, uh, the the our conversation with asking you who are you, what do you do, and how do you try to make a difference. Hi Benjamin, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I've been listening to some of your episodes and have thoroughly enjoyed them. My name is Santiago Rincón Gallardo. I am a, an education consultant um, and. Uh, uh, also, the chief research officer of uh, Michael Fullan's um, educational consulting uh, group. Um, what I've been doing over the past couple decades um, is centered around a very basic fundamental idea. Um, my work, both as an academic and as a scholar, as an organizer and an educator is centered around a very simple idea, uh, which is uh, that learning is a practice of freedom. That's the idea of the core, uh, at the core of the work that I do. Uh, and I've been uh, supporting um, school systems, school networks, education organizations, um, education systems, districts, whole uh, ministries of education, provincial or state level um, departments of education to organize themselves so that they can liberate learning. Um, and I've been doing this um, across Latin America, in Australia, in North America as well, in a few European countries, in, in Africa as well. I started off my work in education in Mexico, where I am from. And um, I met my mentor, Gabriel Camara, at that point, a very good friend of uh, Paulo Freire and, uh, and uh, Ivan Illich in the 70s. Um, and with him, I learned, uh, I, I was able to be part of a team that developed 
a, a pedagogical model that um, basically enhance, you know, was designed to uh, allow children and their educators in the most remote communities in Mexico to take learning in their own hands, to learn how to learn on their own. Um, and uh, what started as a very small scale um, attempt to start developing uh, environments, productive environments for learning uh, in, in the course of about 10 years, ended up expanding like wildfire across the whole country to the point that we had 9,000 schools um, uh, practicing uh, learning as a practice of freedom. Uh, in the in the margins of our societies, in the most remote communities across the country, but in very powerful ways. That was the beginning of my work as an educator. The first decade or, or so of my work was uh, more on the grassroots um, change kind of work, grassroots pedagogical innovation. Um, when I moved to Toronto after doing my grad studies in uh, in Boston, um, I met Michael Fullen, um, you know, best-selling author, one of my idols in the field. I actually didn't know Michael Fullen was alive when uh, when I moved to Toronto. I had no idea he was Canadian. I had no idea he lived in Toronto, but it turned out that um, that he was looking for a young researcher to to join his team. So I was able to join him. Michael Fullen has been an advisor to uh, premiers, um, uh, to states, uh, and uh, has been supporting whole whole system change in education. He was uh, one of the kind of brilliant minds behind um, one of the most powerful education reform efforts that we've seen in the world, which is in the province of Ontario in Canada. Uh, so Michael Fullen has come to the, to the field of education, mostly from the top down in terms of supporting governments to design good strategy. And that was a good complement to my grassroots uh, origins. Uh, so I started with Michael over the past seven years that I've been working with him, um, learning about what you can do also at the top of the system to engage in meaningful ways with the bottom and to, to create cultures of powerful learning. Uh, so in many ways, my life is, uh, is a combination of navigating different worlds that are usually not speaking to each other. You know, the grassroots work uh, in, the, in the global south and, uh, and the top-down work of ministries of education in the north. Um, it's, been, uh, it's been a combination of working on social justice and community organizing and also on school improvement you know, better, uh, school improvement and social justice as well. Um, again, these are pairs of worlds that usually don't speak to each other. And I have, just, I have just found that the magic happens when you bring the worlds together, where, where, where these two worlds start to learn from each other. Uh, the grassroots from uh, from the leadership of systems, uh, the the folks doing social justice work with folks uh, advancing school improvement and educational change, um, the global south and the global north, etc. So in a way that that summarizes where I come from and and uh, and what brings me here. And this idea of liberating learning, of 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 freedom to learn, it, it, it'll, it'll be a wonderful way to to uh, to go forward from the, the next question, which I, I ask all our, our guests: is how do you define learning? That's a great question, um, and uh, and uh, as as you know, and and I think the reason you ask this to everybody is that it's a question that 
uh, even though it's at the center of what we do as educators and education systems, or what we say we do as educators and in education systems, very few people have a clear understanding or a clear, uh, concise definition of what it is. My definition would be more or less as follows. Learning is the process and the result of making sense uh, of questions that matter to us. That's it. It's the process and the result of making sense of questions that matter to us. And let me break it, break it down a little bit. I mean, it's um, first, it's a process. It's not an end. It's not just an end. It is a journey. Um, it is some, as well the result of the journey, but it is both things. Um, and uh, I emphasize the making sense because that's at the core of learning. It's about using what you know, what you believe, what you value, as the resources to make sense, to give meaning to new things. It's about mobilizing what you know, what you believe, uh, your values, um, and, and, and using them to, um, to understand new things. It's about making new connections, connecting in new ways what you know with what you don't. Uh, so that's the meaning making side of things. And, uh, the reason why I emphasize that it's around things that matter to us is because that's where learning happens. <laughs> that is where learning happens. You learn what you're interested in learning, what you need to learn, not what you're told, uh, not what people tell you that's important. It is what matters to you. Um, and uh, when I, the reason why I emphasize, emphasize that part of the definition, it's around making sense of things that matter to us, is because learning is at the same time a very uh, intensive intellectual endeavor as it is an emotional involvement with, with, with what you do. So in summary, learning as I define it is the process and the result of making sense of questions that matter to us. And this is something that will shake a lot of people who don't necessarily have this kind of mental structures who think that learning is being able to go through and, and, and working through content that has been given to them by someone somewhere out there who writes curriculum. So, so how are we going to, um, or how do you suggest that we restructure these old structures of what learning is? That is a big question. Um, it is a big question. Uh, let me start by saying that there is a difference, a fundamental difference between learning to be taught and learning to learn. And what schools are designed to do and do relatively well is prepare children to be taught. What does it mean to be taught, to learn to be taught? Is to learn to sit quietly, to listen to what the teacher is saying, to understand the expectations of your authority and respond accordingly. Fundamentally, learning to be taught is about compliance, about obedience. And don't get me wrong, wrong. That's, a, that's an important thing to learn. I have two young children. And if they didn't listen to what I'm, say, to what I'm saying, what I'm asking them to do, and sometimes they don't, things are, are chaotic. So it's helpful to have you know, a, a, a certain interaction with children that allows them to understand what you're expecting to them, from them and, and, re, and, and, um, and respond accordingly. The problem is when that becomes a systematic lesson that our children and youth are exposed to in their everyday in classrooms. Because learning to be taught also implies when that's the only thing or the most important thing you learn, it also means that you um, 
learn to place the responsibility to determine what's true, what's good, what's beautiful outside of yourself, in the teacher, in the principal, in the minister of education, in the president, outside of yourself. And that is a big problem if what we're trying to do is to uh, nurture uh, full human beings. Learning to, to be taught is fundamentally different from learning to learn in the sense that learning to learn is about assuming the responsibility, taking the responsibility in your hands of determining um, based on your own values and your community's values, your, your knowledge, your wisdom, your intuition, what is true, what is good, what is beautiful. It is not about putting it outside of yourself. It's about taking the responsibility to do that. Uh, and at the end of the day, that's at the core of the kind of education we need for the future. Uh, I know you asked me about the how, and I promise I'll get there in a moment. Um, but I just wanted to point out that we are currently in a global crisis, uh, in, in case anyone hasn't noticed, but a global crisis that is shaking up most of our certainties, economically, politically, um, environmentally. We are at a point of crisis. Um, Antonio Gramsci defined crisis as a moment where the old system is dead, but the new system is not born yet. Uh, you know, from the, uh, from the um, Chinese perspective, the concept of Wei Ji, of crisis, is, is uh, composed of these two major characters, two basic concepts, which are danger and multiple possibilities. In a time of crisis where the old system is dead, the new one is not burned, there are so many pieces moving that there are many possibilities moving forward. Now, the thing is, in a moment of crisis, you really don't know whether there's nothing to, to guarantee that the new system will be better in any way than the previous one. And we're living in times where nothing less than the human project is in danger, is at stake, is up for grabs. Not only the human project, and as many of your speakers in this episode, in, this, in, in, your, in your podcast have pointed out, um, it's also life in the planet, right? It's the sustainability of life in the planet that's in danger. But within that, the human project is also at stake. Before the pandemic, we had already been reaching levels of dehumanization that were incredibly problematic. Um, you saw George Floyd, a black man, being killed by a police officer with a knee on his, um, on his uh, neck while he was pleading for air. Uh, we've seen hundreds of children in the border uh, between Mexico and the United States being separated from their families and put in cages um, and no record uh, that allows parents to find the, the children. Um, we see levels of violence against women uh, in many societies that are very problematic. We see the extermination of indigenous peoples and uh, and environmentalists, uh, environmental activists that are incredibly problematic. Um, and what that signals to is the crisis of the human project. We are we are we are losing it. We're losing the human project. We're losing grip of the human project. So in this crisis, uh, COVID just exacerbated things that had been had been um, already latent and deteriorating very quickly. 
Um, by the way, today is Canada Day. Uh, today, July 1st, we celebrate Canada Day. And it's happening, the heats are in, in, um, in a moment where uh, many graves, unmarked graves of indigenous children are being found. Over a thousand bodies of indigenous children in unmarked graves in former residential schools. There are, you know, the human project has been at risk for a long time, and at this time of crisis, it's uh, it's 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 up it's up for grabs. That's that's the nature, or that's the 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 size of the of the challenge we have in front of us. And if we don't pay de deliberate attention to rebuild the human project, the default trend will be further dehumanization, not more. So that's the size of the challenge. I know I'm moving a little bit away from the, from the, from the question you're asking, but I just wanted to place what I'm gonna be saying now in this context, what, what I believe our role now as educators, as education leaders, et cetera, is, is um, to make sure that uh, through education, we rebuild the human project. Now, learning to be taught, dehumanizes. It, it is about, as I was saying, putting the authority, the responsibility to determine what's true, what's good, what's beautiful outside of yourself. And that is very problematic uh, because that's when uh, politicians who lie can manipulate entire masses where, where social media uh, can spread false information and influence voting decisions and influence election results. When you learn to place responsibility outside of yourself, it's not only human, it's not only your personal integrity and capacity and freedom that's challenged. Democracy is challenged as well. And well-being in general are, is challenged. Anyways, that's the size of the problem. Learning to be taught and learning to learn are very, two very different things. And I think our emphasis has to be on defining with as much clarity as possible what is learning and what do we educate for? We need to ask that question uh, and answer it as explicitly and clearly as we can. And if I had to uh, articulate my own answer to what do we educate for, I would summarize it in four things. When I think about the kind of education I want my children to have and all children in the world to have, I'm thinking about an education that prepares them to know themselves, to learn and think by themselves, to care for others and the planet, and to better the world. Those four things, four fundamental uh, purposes for education. Now, the bad news is that schooling as we know it, it's a very bad technology, very ineffective technology to pursue any of these four things, you know, knowing yourself, learning, thinking by yourself, um, caring for others and the world, bettering the, wor the, bettering the world, um, are things that schools are uh, not good technologies to promote, to foster. Learning to be taught is moving away from knowing yourself, from learning and thinking by yourself, let alone taking care of others and the planet, bettering the world, et cetera. So having established that, how do we move there? Moving from what I call the, what has been called the grammar of schooling, 
to what I call the language of learning, you know, moving away from the logic of schooling to the language of learning, uh, to learning as a practice of freedom, will require deep and widespread cultural change. We need to change in fundamental ways how we think about and how we practice things like teaching, things like school leadership, system leadership, etc. We need to reimagine again how we think about, how we talk about, and how we practice teaching, school leadership, uh, system leadership, etc. So what we need is deep and widespread cultural change. Now, throughout history, the most powerful vehicles, the mechanism that humanity has found and developed to change culture and to do it in a deep and widespread manner are social movements. That is the mechanism we have. And that's the way in which, or that's the vehicle through which societies and cultures have changed in fundamental ways. I, when I'm talking about social movements here, I'm not emphasizing, and I don't want to overemphasize uh, the violent aspect of social movements, the confrontational nature of social movements. There are many oppressed groups that have access to nothing else than violence to uh, react back and to respond to the violence they're subject to, right? But when I refer uh, to social movements, I, I'm, I, I, I place a special emphasis on the role that social movements have as vehicles for cultural renewal especially cultural renewal that brings us closer to our shared humanity. Uh, bureaucracies change culture, but change it in a way that dehumanizes us more than humanizes us. Social movements are, uh, many social movements operate as vehicles for cultural renewal that moves us towards further humanization. Think about the civil rights movement in the United States. Part of uh, the, the intent and the, uh, the, the intent of uh, the civil rights movement has been, um, was and has been to change the nature of the relationship between two groups that are in, uh, in a relationship of oppression, of uh, vertical separation, white folks and black folks, right? White Americans and black Americans. The feminist movement has been uh, attempting not only to change legislation, et cetera, but changing the rules of the game, the nature of the connection between men and women, because it's been a connection that, again, it establishes a hierarchical division uh, of power and control between one group and the other. Um, the same with uh, indigenous movements uh, around the globe. They're trying to establish a new new rules of the game, a new way of connection and relationship between colonizers and indigenous groups and the colonized. Um, and uh, at the heart of all these examples of the, all these movements is changing patterns of social interaction between groups that at a particular moment, historical moment in time, are relating in terms of oppression, of control, of authority of one group over the other. And the idea and what, what drives a lot of the energy of these movements is trying to establish a connection that's more horizontal in nature, where, yes, we continue to be different, but we're not, no group is more than the other. 
no, there's no group controlling the other. What, what these uh, movements are trying to move towards is to a world where, or an, a social order, where the interaction between them is among equals. Like no one is worth more than anyone else. And we learn from each other as we try to make sense of each other and to solve ideally problems in common. So it's moving from vertical connection to horizontal relationships of dialogue, of solidarity, of mutual care, to relationships where we both learn and benefit from each other and, uh, and, and change in the process of interacting with the other. Anyways, when it comes to education, the two basic patterns um, of social interaction that we need to reimagine and to reconfigure are first the connection between adults and young children, um, because again, it's, it's uh, historically a connection that's vertical in nature, uh, it's oppressive in nature, and because of that, it's dehumanizing, even unintentionally. And also the connection between policy and practice, between the people who make the decisions about what happens in education systems and the people doing the work every day. Because the same pattern of, um, of, 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 of vertical disconnect, vertical separation between the one who decides what has to do and the one who works on the, uh, on the ground is, uh, is repeated, not only in the classroom, but in entire educational systems. Those are the two basic patterns we need to, to re-signify, to, to subvert and change. How do we do it? We do it in a similar way to how social movements operate. It might sound like a big theoretical elucubration. And the good news is that it's not just theoretical um, um, uh, wonder, you know, wanderings and wanderings. Uh, this idea of educational change as a social movement is actually an idea that, uh, that originated from, uh, from learning about multiple examples of pedagogical renewal in the global south that have been liberating learning in very powerful ways in the most remote corners of their countries and they're doing it at, they have done it at scale i'm talking about uh, the learning community project or the tutorial networks res de tutoria in mexico uh, practice that, that spread um, to 9,000 schools all over the country, the one I was talking about. I, I had the pleasure of being part of the initiators of that, uh, of that work. Uh, Escuela Nueva in Colombia, um, a, a, a very kind of child-centered um, pedagogy and educational model uh, that uh, affords uh, children a lot of freedom to determine what to learn, how, at what pace, all those kind of things, uh, with, a, with a very heavy component of community involvement, um, uh, student government, um, uh, uh, you know, the local gardens, a lot, of, a lot of work around taking care of the environment and, 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 uh, and engaging in the community as well. Escuela Nueva in the 90s spread to over 20,000 rural schools in Colombia. Um, uh, the activity-based learning in the southern state of Tamil Nadu in India, that one spread to about 38,000 schools in, uh, in, in the whole state. Uh, and community schools in Egypt, uh, they have reached about 2,000 schools in the, in the most, uh, in the, in the most um, uh, uh, marginalized um, uh, hamlets in, um, in northern Egypt as well. Uh, again, what all these 
initiatives have in common is that they've been able to replace the grammar of schooling with the language of learning. They have managed to do it at scale in thousands, across thousands of schools. And when different people have been studying these initiatives, mostly separate, you know, separately from each other, they have called these initiatives social movements. Sorry, there are some fireworks around here. It's a celebration of Canada Day, so you will probably hear some of that. Nothing to, to be um, um, alarmed about. But, um, but, but the thing is, there, there are examples of, uh, of uh, groups and, and collectives that have been transforming the grammar of schooling, that have been liberating learning. They have doing it at scale and that operate as social movements. Um, that's how that's how they work. So again, the idea of educational change as a social movement is not just a theoretical elucoration as much as it is uh, a way to make sense of things that are already happening in the global south, um, and that I, I believe we we will do well to learn more about and and to learn from. This idea of social movement is going to take me to a question that's been really been on my mind quite quite a bit in terms of whether or not change should come from the center or from the fringe. But I want to get to something that you mentioned about all the things that are going on in Mexico and, and on the border where children have been put in cages, about indigenous peoples being uncovered, about um, all, all the people dying in the streets by police officers. And this is not something that I actually knew. It's been going on the, the, the genocide of indigenous peoples for at least 500 years, if not before. I think the difference now, uh, and this isn't something that's earth shattering, it's, it's you know, I certainly am not the first person today, is that now these, these videos go viral and, and everybody, there is uh, a sense of connection, immediate and instantaneous about what's going on. And one of the issues I have with Steven Pinker, for instance, who talks about how this is the greatest time in the history of, of, of humanity because there is so little violence, so little hunger, is that it's not about the reality of little violence, little hunger, it's about the perception of where we are. And unfortunately, the frustration comes from the hope that we know we should do better, but we're not doing better. And that's the frustration. So we're actually much more miserable. I'm happy with my, with my Ferrari, but when I see that my neighbor has two Lamborghinis and a Ferrari, I'm now unhappy. So, so, so that's, that's, that's a, a, a stress there. And I guess what I want to what I want to think about is, is this idea, and, and we'll get into the fringe and the and the center in just a second. But um, this idea of of content now that it's free, going to what you're saying about the four things that school should teach. If content is free, it's about what we do with the content that now matters, which is now exactly what you're saying about caring for each other, caring for ourselves, making sense of the world, comes from working with the content, and that's something that schools cannot teach because it goes against the meta-narrative, it goes against the system, in schools where it's hard enough to teach, you know, about, um, uh, you know, not, not teach about creationism. So, so what I'm trying to get at is, if, we, if schools don't have it in themselves to go against the meta-narrative because they come from politics, will change come from the center or from the fringe? If it's a social movement, it is from the fringe, it seems like it, and then it spills over. I, long way to ask, What's going on? Yeah, cultural change usually starts at the margins. I mean, that's that's almost by uh, by by nature the way it happens, and uh, and it happens for I think very 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 basic reasons. I mean, it's in the margins of society, that's where you usually have huge unmet need, uh, where conventional solutions are either too expensive or too dysfunctional, too ineffective, um, and uh, and where you have more room to play, 
you know, in the, in the margins of society, you have less supervision, less, uh, less presence of institutions. And uh, that can be, you know, that can go, be for good or for bad. But if you have a good idea in the margins, you have, you have a good chance to, to try out different things. Um, and, and many windows of opportunity open up uh, in moments, for example, where ministers of education and, or governments realize that there's a problem with things, even things like educational achievement or whatever, you know, how you want to call it, but uh, with educational opportunity in, uh, in the margins of society. And at the same time, while there is uh, awareness that there's a, there's, there's a challenge, there's very little imagination as to how, how you get to solve it. Uh, there's, there's very little uh, creativity, usually in bureaucracies, about how to solve problems. The idea, you know, they, they, it's usually recycling the same old ways of doing things. So that creates an environment where it's easier to, you know, uh, to, to, to be more uh, permissive of radical innovation. So that's the first thing. Uh, and and uh, uh, so that's where movements start. Now, if that's where they stay, then they will not last too long or they will, it's very hard to sustain them. So um, it is important. What I would say is the following. No matter where change comes from, that's, that's an example. The thing is, Ontario, for example, created a very interesting model that was initiated at the top uh, with a very clear sense of what we want to accomplish. It was still focused on relatively uh, conservative measures of, of learning, you know, uh, achievement standards, reaching certain standards at certain point, et cetera, uh, a certain percentage of kids who need to reach certain standards in literacy and numeracy, et cetera. But what they were able to do was to change the culture of an entire system where and the culture was around learning you know just getting getting some clarity as to what powerful learning in these particular areas in literacy numeracy could look like and how do we work with teachers to develop solutions together as to how to improve uh, the learning opportunities for children again it's a relatively limited uh, version of learning but what ontario has to its credit is they change the culture of an entire system and the force for change came from the top now the thing is it, so, so to your question, it can come, cultural change can come from either way. Uh, so I, it, it seems like now I'm contradicting myself because I'm thinking a lot. It sometimes can come from the periphery, from the fringes, from the ground. Sometimes it can come from the bottom. The very important thing is that none of those, none of those options will survive without engaging with the other. So if you're, if you're starting from the top, you need to engage in very uh, um, robust collaboration with the fringes, with the people doing the work on the ground. If you're starting from the, from the grassroots, you need to learn to engage and uh, manage up in, way, in, in some ways, uh, those in power, because that's what allows you to, uh, to, to create conditions for sustainability and for spread. All the movements that I mentioned, the four movements that I presented as examples here, tutorial networks, tutoria in Mexico, Escuela Nueva in Colombia, activity-based learning in, um, in India, uh, community schools in uh, Egypt, reached a moment where someone, a leader, a local leader in these initiatives that were initially, you know, at the beginning grassroots in nature, were invited to take part in influential positions 
in their ministries of education, in the national ministries of education of their systems or the state level ministries of education. And that's what presented the opportunity to spread at massive scale. Now, what these people did, uh, again, without knowing each other, without speaking to, with each other, is once these local kind of more grassroots leaders found themselves in the ministries of education, what they started to do was to bring in their teams, what Gramsci would call our the, uh, organic intellectuals, teachers who knew how to do the work of liberating learning, uh, teacher coaches who had experience supporting uh, teach, uh, you know, teachers to, to, to change the nature of their work. And they brought them to their national teams. And suddenly you, they, had, they created this kind of radical bastion, so to speak, in the belly of the monster. Uh, so there, there are, in all these examples, there's a moment where um, some grassroots leaders take institutional power, but the important thing is that they take it and then change the logic of institutional power. So they, they, they take the opportunity, they chase it, but they don't get sucked up in the bureaucracy, but they but instead try to change the, the logic of institutional power. Let me give you some examples. Dalila Lopez in Mexico, who was part of the uh, uh, founding leaders of uh, the Learning Community Project or Res de Tutoria. She was invited to the Department of Innovation in the Ministry of Education in Mexico. She started to bring in a lot of people in the team, in, her, in the grassroots team, to the National Ministry of Education. She made a hybrid team between folks in the bureaucracy who knew the bureaucracy very well and uh, these kind of um, misfits, so to speak, from the grassroots work. And they started to work together. What did they start to do? They started to leverage all the resources and all the political backing that, you know, that they gained from being part of the ministry to develop the infrastructure for a social network to spread more, more easily uh, and to connect more easily between schools nationally. So they created a very powerful infrastructure for schools to interact with each other and to learn from each other, et cetera. At the same time, Dalila and her team created a, started to create a culture in the institution where anybody in the system no matter which level of the system you were at, had to practice, to learn and to practice and to model the pedagogical practice or the pedagogical principles that were expected from schools. See, so Dalila would spend a lot of time in schools, not to supervise the schools. The national leader of this program would spend time in schools to model the practice of tutoring, which was at the core of this, of this particular project. The same with Escuela Nueva. Everybody in the system was expected to learn and model um, the practice that was preached, right? Um, and there was also a very close link between design and execution, so that the designers at the top took the responsibility, assumed the responsibility of demonstrating that the ideas that they had could be actually realized in practice. So a lot of the work was about spending a lot of time in the schools and in the communities, not to evaluate the schools, not to evaluate the teachers or the students or to criticize the families, but to learn about the strategy 
it's about taking responsibility of what's actually happening on the ground as a, as, as a result of what we're trying to do. And then you start refining and improving the strategy over time to, uh, to, 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 to make it more, more effective and, and more efficient. So the link between design and execution and uh, this idea, so this idea that the top partners with the bottom uh, in a learning partnership uh, and uh, this new culture that they started to create around learning, not around compliance, but around learning, where learning is everybody's work, not only the students, not only the teachers, everybody has to be learning and make the learning visible across the system. Uh, was a way to leverage institutional power and changing its logic. So uh, to your question again, it actually doesn't matter where you start, but you need to be intentional about, about interacting in a purposeful way with the other levels. And the question becomes, how does this movement grow? And it will grow by convincing folks and it will convince folks if there's results. Now we live in a world where uh, it's about quarterly profit earnings. Uh, it's about in a world where uh, governments are judged on how, how much they've grown GDP. And, and in terms of school, what the results are compared to last year, be it uh, in terms of global rankings or, or, or national rankings. So in this sense, if we liberate learning, and it's about making sense of things that matter to us, how do we reconcile this with the idea that people will want external measures of what learning is, which oftentimes are quantified because it's just easier to compare 48 with 52. How do we work within this model? Because there's, there's quite a contradiction because if it matters to us, it's personal. Yeah, um, that's a very good question. And I didn't mention this, but uh, in the case of Escuela Nueva, um, by the end of the 90s, thanks to Escuela Nueva, children in rural schools were outperforming children in urban schools by the standard measures of achievement, even though the movement never paid any attention to improving standardized test scores. In uh, the tutorial networks in Mexico, after about eight years, children in the in middle school children in the most remote communities with the least experienced teachers in the schools with the least resources started to outperform their counterparts in more privileged communities. In the case of mathematics, they started to perform at the same level as, as private middle school children. In Mexico, that's the 8% of the elite, right? It is the elite of the elite, those who are privileged enough to pay for and to choose a school for their children. Kids in the most remote corners of Mexico were performing at a similar level than children in, in privilege. So I'm not, I, 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 in, you know, I, um, but again, these results were um, obtained without paying any mind to standardize testing. So these cases, the same with, uh, with community schools in Egypt, uh, they, they proved to be way more efficient uh, in terms even of standardized testing than conventional schools. Um, so, so there are two things. First, I do believe that there are ways in which, um, uh, in which you, can, you can show those kind of 
arbitrary result, you know, results on arbitrary measures. If you pay attention to what matters the most and what matters the most is changing what happens in, the, in what's called the, what I call the pedagogical core in the relationship between an educator and a learner in the presence of an object of knowledge. You change that and that's where, where learning changes, where, where you produce better learning. And if you invest your time in ensuring that the children get better at learning by themselves, you know, they understand what they read better, they will do better at tests even if you don't train them for it. And that's what these cases demonstrate as well. Now, that's one thing. That's, that's one thing to say. So I'm, I, I don't feel uh, very, um, very worried about results in standardized testing, even though, you know, in standardized tests, even though I know those are very arbitrary measures of, of achievement and learning. Very arbitrary, very uh, ill-designed, Ill, Ill very narrow, etc. So first, uh, you, can, you can win the game without even trying. Uh, if your focus is on a different game, which is not the old game of schooling, it's the new game of learning. And you can do that. I mean, the, the, these examples are just beautiful illustrations of how you can even achieve in conventional measures of achievement without even paying attention to improving levels of achievement, but focusing on changing what happens at the pedagogical core. So that's one thing. The other one is, I think, uh, these measures that have been used to, to judge schools, to determine funding, to determine uh, you know, um, rewards and punishments for schools are, are losing legitimacy at, at a very high speed. Uh, less and less people are buying into this. Less and less people are buying into this. And I think in the world we're heading towards, that's even less meaningful. What's the relationship between good grades and living a good life <laughs> between doing well in school. And as Michael Full and my mentor usually says, uh, between doing well in school and doing well in life, there's no connection. And that connection is becoming less and less uh, clear <laughs> uh, every day, every single day. Um, so while these measures continue to be important, I would just divert attention away from them to place the attention on what really matters, which is making sure our children are able to learn and think by themselves, they know themselves, all those kinds of things. And even those results that are arbitrary, you know, arbitrary measures, et cetera, you will get there, even without paying much attention to them. But the other thing that we need to do is to start to, uh, to redefine uh, the role of things like those kind of assessments, um, because they have been very counterproductive. And what they have created is cultures where what our kids learn how to do is to pass tests. And that's learning to be taught. And that's counterproductive for everything we really value, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, in the new, you know, when we think about the new human project. Um, so they have been very counterproductive, not very helpful really to, to predict whether folks will do well in life, whether they will be good for life, good in life, etc. So uh, I think another part of the work that has to be done is first to reposition the role of evaluation to, to see if it really has any, any, any sense uh, to, to do it. Uh, I think it does, but we need to reposition it in important ways and to start to, uh, as Joanne McKechn, uh, a good friend, has, has been pointing out, we need to make the important measurable instead of making the measurable important. And that may imply trying to think about new ways to capture uh, learning.
to 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 demonstrate it. You know, there are there are lots of efforts being done uh, to re-signify evaluation, to think about new measures, etc. Now, to be honest, that's not part of the work where I've been putting my my effort. I'm I'm uh, less interested in measuring uh, uh, learning as uh, in uh, in making it happen. And so what does that look like? Let's get a little bit more practical in, in the classroom. Let's say there's a, a listener out there who who's not part of one of the fringe classes, but is just maybe a little bit rebellious enough to try something in the classroom. What would that look like? How would that change? Um, well, just let me give you just one example, and, and, and I'll talk about the one that's closest to my experience and my, and my heart, which is the tutorial networks in Mexico. What, what you see in a, in a learning community in, a, in Mexico, in these remote communities across the country, is um, uh, uh, it's, it's a very simple structure. What happens is the, the, the teacher uh, is part of a network of teachers where he learns uh alongside their peers and they learn about things that they're supposed to teach the the children you know the, they learn about mathematics and literature and history and and uh, they learn from the curriculum many things that they're supposed to know but that, that they have discovered they really don't know very deeply and what they do is look to create so one day once they master a certain collection of topics ideas etc um, um uh, books readings etc problems they uh they present students with a catalog of possible themes that they could explore but it's things that the tutors know well and the children are um, are allowed to choose what they want to learn uh, and they're given free reigns to determine how much time they will spend into it how they will approach it etc they have the leisure of time they can dedicate as much time as they want uh, to develop mastery of these topics and and the tutor is, is, is kind of a coach, someone who is not telling the student what to do, but supports them uh, asking good questions, just the good questions to, that allow the tutor to know how the student is thinking about the problem, and then asking good questions that allow the student to find their own answers. The idea is to start asking the kind of questions that you're hoping the, the, ch the child or the student will learn to internalize and start to ask themselves when they're facing challenges, et cetera. So students, you know, in a learning community, you see students learn different, studying different things at different times. And they have to demonstrate publicly what they're learning and how they're learning. They can do it in writing, they do it in public presentations to their peers, sometimes to the community, et cetera. And the culminating moment of the learning process is once you demonstrate mastery of what you learn, you are expected to become tutor to other children who might want to learn that. Uh, and in that way, the children are learning both the content, but also they're developing skills to learn independently and they're learning the pedagogy. So over time, what's happening is that um, the knowledge that's generating this way becomes kind of a common property of the group and it's available to anyone who wants to learn about that thing in particular. And the responsibility for learning and teaching is shared between adults and children. Actually, in these kind of learning communities, the, the role of a teacher and a student is very uh, fluid. Sometimes the student is the teacher, the, 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 the tutor. Sometimes the, even the adult is the, 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 the apprentice, uh, especially when children start to get very comfortable with this and start to run their own research around the questions that they decide they want to explore. Then they start being tutors to the teachers as well. So in this way, the, the idea is learning becomes a, a, a visible practice. Everybody practices learning. 
Uh, so the basic idea, if I had to have to say it just very, this is more or less what it looks like. Um, uh, what um, what you create is, a, is 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 an environment where young people are seen and treated as full-on learners from day one, just as parents treat, you know, talk to young babies as if they already knew how to talk. When we engage with children, when we have babies, we talk to them and we respond to them when they babble, when they, you know, when they mumble. And we enter in conversations with them, even though we have no idea what they're trying to say. We see them and treat them as fully capable of communicating with us. It's the same spirit that these teachers bring to the learning communities, which is from the beginning, even if the child comes to school with challenges with you know, literacy and being able to decode words, from the beginning, they are treated as full-on learners. Of course, the initial learning projects and the things they write will be very imperfect at the beginning. But the idea is from the very, from the get-go, children practice as if they were consummated learners and they have access to other you know, older children who are also, um, who, who, who are uh, more experienced at learning, who can mentor them as well. So it's, it's a kind of a craftsmanship. It's, it's a kind of a, a workshop where the work is learning and it is visible for everybody. And there are different levels of expertise and everybody can support each other depending on who knows about something and who's interested in learning it. That's the basic idea. It's a very simple idea but it turns out to be incredibly powerful. And I could see that actually uh, transpiring into, into the adult world as well, as we go back into the learning spaces to learn different skills, to learn different things. If the content itself, I could learn anything on YouTube anyway, probably better than you know, listening to a guy uh, on, you know, in front of me, um, we can come back to these and learn from each other yet again. Yeah, yeah, no, that's right. And the thing is the same culture you see in classrooms, in, in spaces, in, 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 in uh, movements like this, the same, the, 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 the same kind of work that you see in a classroom, you will see in teacher networks. When teachers are working together, the dynamic is very similar. Done in state level teams, than in the national team. Everybody's practicing tutoring. Everybody's learning something from someone who knows more about it and exchanging it with, with someone else. And, uh, and that's what creates new culture. I remember uh, Jen, Jenny Finn, who during your interview, she was talking about uh, founding this beautiful school, uh, Spring House, with the idea of creating culture, of culture building. And what, uh, what these movements are doing are creating culture, but doing it in a way that doesn't stay in a bubble. It's not like creating a bubble of hope, but it's about spreading the culture at scale. I'm talking thousands of schools, thousands of communities uh, united around a similar practice, uh, a similar set of principles about what it means to learn and how can we best support it. Excellent. Listen, thank you so much for all these wonderful ideas. And, and I love this, this concept of horizontal, horizontality. Hor I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but making it horizontal because that is with the adults and the children. That is with issues of climate crisis, social injustice, gender, 
race, all that uh, same struggle against um, uh, a meta narrative that that creates conditions. Um, I, I wanted to give you uh, maybe the chance of uh, to, to answer two more questions. Uh, one is, uh, what's on your mind now? What what are some of the things that you're working on? What are some of the things that you're thinking about moving forward? Um, one of the one of the most uh, intriguing for me, and I'm surprised about this, is play, uh, the role of play. I've been reading lately. Uh, I, I read recently uh, a phenomenal book by um, by Alison Gopnik, The Gardener and the Carpenter, uh, and I, I'm reading currently a book by Patsy Salver and William Doyle called Let the Children Play. Um, uh, and I've been interacting with some colleagues who, have, you know, almost at the same time, we're starting to come to the concept of play from different places. A child psychology, uh, psychiatrist, uh, Gene Clinton, um, Josh Fullan, uh, the son of Michael Fullan, is doing some research around play. And from all the places we're looking at, uh, it does seem like in times like this, for example, the children who are better off right now through the pandemic are, are the ones who have more access to play. Uh, in all measures, well-being, even academic learning, uh, in health, the more you play, the better off you are. So that's that's one thing. But the most intriguing part for me is to I, I have always I had always believed that play was an important aspect of ch childhood. But what Alison Gopnik um, from Stanford is suggesting is that there is a reason why childhood is so prolonged in humans. There's a reason why, uh, compared to any other species, we have a, an extremely large portion of our life as children. And what she's saying is that that's an evolutionary design because childhood is the moment where you have a protected space to play. And the reason why this is evolutionary design is because it's through playing, by playing, that you can start formulating questions that the adults are done, haven't, haven't formulated. And where you can start to find new solutions to problems that the adults already know how to solve in a certain way. That's the difference between learning to be taught and learning to learn. Learning to learn is play in many ways. It is about exploring, about doing it in a place of safety to make mistakes, to try out different things, etc. So what uh, uh, what Alison Gopnik says in a, in, a, in a way that summarizes it beautifully is we can really we cannot really make the children learn. We can only let them learn. And that's what play is about. Uh, so right now I'm very excited about that. I'm, I'm very excited about looking looking into um, into the role of play and trying to do work to try to reposition it. As the as perhaps the the most powerful recovery strategy um, coming out of COVID, that that that's what we should be allowing the children to do, just to play, not to make them learn, but to let them learn. Um, that's one. The other one, the the other big area for me is, um, and that's something I'm cultivating. You know, trying to learn through courses and and consulting and the kind of work that I'm doing is how to leverage this moment to, um, to try to, to liberate learning as opposed to coming back to the status quo with, with a revenge, right? The start, the, with, with the level of fatigue that many of us are feeling, there's very little 
bandwidth uh, amongst many educators and leaders to even consider changing in any fundamental way the nature of schooling. And part of the, my area of work right now is figuring out the ways in which you can ignite a new purpose and use that as the, as the driving force of fundamentally changing the game of schooling and, and, uh, and, and, and bringing to life the, the new game of learning. I feel like I could talk to you for hours or listen to you for hours as well. I think there's so much that, that still needs to be left uncovered. The second question I asked was, what, what books are you reading now? But you've mentioned a few. Uh, are there any other ones that have caught your eye? There are a couple a couple books. I, I tend to have three or four books open and, and, and reading them at the same time. Uh, another one is Humankind but, uh, by Roger Bergman. Um, it's Humankind, a hopeful story. It's a phenomenal, phenomenal historical um, um, argument for a for a very simple idea, which is uh, on the on the at the end of the day, humans are actually pretty good <laughs> by nature, pretty good, uh, and he demonstrated with amazing examples um, uh, that that defy uh, many of the beliefs we have about how selfish we are, um, and what he's pointing out is really what history will demonstrate has demonstrated over and over again is that that humans are people are, are good people <laughs> and that's a radical idea uh, uh so so that's that's a book I'm, I'm really enjoying humankind a hopeful story there's one that i'm coming back to now which is by um uh, by chet bowers it's called the false promises of constructivist theories of learning uh and uh and what he does is to present a, a very um, powerful critique to uh, so-called progressive uh, or constructivist uh, pedagogies, just saying, as you know, at the nature of, of your podcast, that they have been too centered on, on the humans. That's one thing. Too centered on humans uh, to the detriment of sustainability and the planet. Um, to anthropocentric, as, the way, as, as you have presented it, uh, and, and many of your guests have, have, uh, have argued. Uh, and also, usually what he argues is that uh, constructivist theories of learning tend to underplay the question of what should we preserve? Not, you know, it's, it's more about progress, about changing all the time, about improving, getting continuously better but they are missing the question of why should we preserve? And that's a fundamental question that we need to continue asking ourselves. So those, would be, those are the four books that are right now on my, on my desk and that I'm, and that I'm visiting. See, this is, this is why I'm, I love this question now. And I've started to ask it the last four or five uh, uh, people on the show because then it just builds on my library. It's absolutely fascinating. So I, I'll definitely pick up the, the, the one that you just mentioned, False Promise of Constructivist. Uh, say it again, please. I'm sorry. I'll, I'll send it to you. Don't worry. I'll send it to you by email. But it's the False Promises of Constructivist Theories of Learning. Actually, there's a subtitle. It's a painfully long title, uh, but the, the subtitle is a global and ecological. Um, uh, oh, I, I'm. It's uh, yes, a, a global, a global and ecological critique. <laughs> the name sounds incredibly boring, <laughs> but but it's a it's a good argument. It's a good argument. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Um, how do people get a hold of you if uh, if if you want them to get a hold of you? Oh, thank you. Yeah, well, uh, you know, the, depending on what what they prefer, but uh, uh, my my website will be up very very soon. Uh, it is um, liberatinglearning.com, and uh, they can also follow me on Twitter at 
S. Rincón Gallardo. So that's that's my last name. They will see it printed somewhere. I'm guessing in your uh, in your in the in the page for the for the podcast episode. So S. Rincón Gallardo. I will send it to you so that it can be shared with the audience as well. Um, thank you very much, uh, Benjamin. It's a pleasure to connect with you. You're doing very important work. I, I I'm a big fan of your podcast now, uh, and I and I appreciate this opportunity to chat. Thank you so much. This has been the Coconut Thinking Podcast. I am your host, Benjamin Freud. Again, we've rebranded from Meaningful Learning, but same ideas of pushing learning forward, shaking the tree, so to speak, uh, in order to really push some ideas out there that don't get um, enough play in the mainstream. Uh, but certainly the fringes, we want to contribute to the conversation to have it be more central so that people continue to question, continue to ask, continue to think critically about what needs to be done, not just for learning, but in the ways learning has connections to some of the crises uh, that we face. Please check out our website, www.coconut-thinking.design. Uh, we look forward to your comments. Uh, connect with us on LinkedIn. Again, it's been the Coconut Thinking Podcast, and we look forward to our next episode. And again, we'll see you soon.